Greetings. I'm Mitch Owens, AD's Decorative Arts Editor. Today I'm joined in the studio by design historian Emily Evans-Erdmans. In addition to her popular scholarly books about interior designers Henri Samuel, Madeleine Castang, and Mario Boata, she's also coordinating Mario Boata, Prince of Interiors, an auction of the late designer's estate, almost 1,000 lots, at Sotheby's in January. There's another book on the way, too, which she'll tell us about, and much more. So one of the things I've always wanted to discuss with you is the fact that your your books, Henri Samuel, Madeleine Castang, the Regency style, um, even English interiors, they've always had a real strong grounding and appreciation of the past. And I'm wondering if those books, as you're working on them, you're, you're thinking of a younger readership seeing them and thinking, I've never seen this before. So that, like learning tools, as much as they are just sort of you know, splashes, splashdowns into style. Absolutely. I think if you look at what's being taught in design schools, history is not emphasized. And the history of the 20th century, which is mainly what I write about, is uh, emphasizes modernism. So mm-hmm. you're not going to learn about Elsie DeWolf. You're not going to learn about even Rob Strong Gibbings, who sort of straddles traditionalism and modernism. And these are important figures. They're fascinating. And I think it's going to make today's designers that much more inspired and their work richer to have a a deeper grounding in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, They're going to have a a bigger foundation from which to draw upon. And is anything original? I mean, that's the question. No, nothing is original, as as we've, we've talked about in the past. I mean, nothing is original. It's how you interpret it. It's what new color do you give it? It's how do you lengthen that leg? I mean, I remember being really excited when your book Regency style came out because it took this early 19th century moment and explored how it was expanded, built upon, reinvented in the early to mid 20th century at a time when modernism was really taking over. But there's this parallel track of neoclassicism reborn. And I I wrote that book when everybody was talking about Hollywood Regency. Kelly Wurstler had just exploded. Jonathan Adler, who was also doing a lot of reproductions of historic designers Mm -hmm. um, in a very sort of glam way. And people were throwing around this Hollywood Regency term, but they had no idea what it meant. And that was sort of the genesis of the book. Well, this is the Regency style. It's a real style, Mm -hmm. as you know, back from the late 18th, early 19th century. And then seeing the interpretations of it are, are, and just as you said, elongating it or silhouetting it could just completely make something historic feel very fresh and today. And and you'll see peppered in that book, and this is something the publisher thought it would would make it more uh, saleable, is contemporary interpretations. Mm -hmm. So so there's Ashley Hicks' living room where he's done a version of uh, the Rob Sean Gibbings' Klismos chair, which in in, in itself was a reinterpretation of an ancient design. So it'll be interesting to see if people find Regency Redux in 20 or 30 years and there's another, you know, another genesis of that style. Um, Because it does seem to be, neoclassicism does seem to be a style that continually is reborn. I remember talking once with with the architect Peter Penoyer, and he was 
telling me there's no such thing as neoclassicism, there's only classicism, mm. because it's constantly a living vocabulary that every generation uses to its own ends. The classical vocabulary is extraordinary in how expansive it is. Mm. And the classical ideal is about beauty, about achieving beauty. And it's interesting. I, I think that's a concept that's the new generation is embracing because beautiful used to be a dirty word. Mm. Uh, in the contemporary art scene, if you were to call a painting beautiful, that would almost be an insult to the artist. And for me, I've always thought I want a beautiful, pretty surrounding, mm. not something cold, cerebral, and conceptual. The, the, the books that I've written about, they all focus on designers who have decorated in a classical way. And most of their clients are sort of the richest, most, in, you know, they're... You really got that when you you, you were um, working on the Henri Samuel book, where oh. it was like the best of the best of the best possible clients. Right, right. The the, the Rothschild family in mm-hmm. France and shipping mag- Greek shipping magnets and, and that sort of thing. So in the 20th century, if you look at how sort of this upper echelon chooses to live, or the people who have all the means in the world, um, how do they want to live? It's generally in a a classical way. They collect, they have lots of layers to the interiors. And I think a classical interior is more forgiving, perhaps, Mm -hmm. of, of layering lots of disparate things. And then it also is American versus European. You know, these European clients inherit things and they, right. they they keep them and then add things on whereas Americans they'll go to a designer and say I I, I want this new apartment turnkey mm. buy everything from the toilet paper to you know the escutcheons on doorknobs and I'll show right. up in three months so it's a very not all American clients are like that of no, course but then but you're also talking about you know when, when Henri Samuel was having all of these great clients I'm thinking particularly the clients in the let's say late 40s, early 1950s, largely European, who are trying to reach back into the past because basically Europe has been leveled. And what was the glory days of France? And that would be 18th century. So let's revive that. Same thing when you think of Christian Dior, the dresses. You think of this whole sort of you know, neo-Rococo, neo-Baroque, you know, neo-Bourbon court this moment of nostalgia and uh, many, uh, you know, Henri Samuel himself was Jewish and I th- I do think that was a factor in why the, the Rothschild family hired him to bring back to life all these houses that the Nazis had occupied, these mm-hmm. incredible chateaux. And so there was this this feeling of, yes, we want to restore to their former glory after this devastation of, of the war, psychological devastation right. as well as physicals, and bringing it back in a historic way. Absolutely. And Madeleine Castang, she loved the English style, English Regency, and then mixed it up with, with a French 19th century Napoleon Trois. Right. It was almost rebellious in a way. I mean, Christian Barard was a devotee, all these Jean Cocteau. Mm -hmm. So all these sort of avant-garde figures embraced her style. So it was almost a nostalgic style with a a eccentric twist to it that she did. But I think today, if you look at her work, you might not realize how she was a little bit different, you know, that, that there was a rebelliousness to what she was doing. When you look at that room for the composer, I think... I'm getting it right, Refredo de Banfield, the bedroom, the red bedroom that is very 19th century, but suddenly in the middle of it all on the bed is this 
19th century American patchwork quilt, which suddenly doesn't seem like it should be there at all. And we might not even notice it now, a lot of people, but at that time, it's a little depth charge. You know, what is she doing? Why is that here? Absolutely. And Gone with the Wind, she loved that movie and watched it over and over again. I can't remember the date of that movie. Was 1939, it th- I think. So there was, she saw herself as Scarlet and bringing back her country house Lev. And so she did, she also had a romance with American style. I mean, I can mm. see that patchwork quilt being part of that moment. So this whole feeling of nostalgia and wanting to have a romanticized version of the past because a Madeleine Castang room or an Henri Samuel room isn't going to be exactly like it would have been back in the 19th century. It's not a museum recreation. And I don't think people want that. No, I don't think they do either. But what I'm wondering is, is there, are you seeing a similar interest in classicism now within a younger generation of either designers or emerging collectors. I mean, I've been really interested in how young artists like Luke Edward Hall, looking back to classicism, classical Greece, channeling a new version of Cocteau, more or less in that vein, but also someone like Misha Khan, who I remember being blown away by some art fair when he... I must have seen it from about 60 feet and ran over to it. And it was, he did a line or a a small collection of really cartoonish, fun, crazy mirrors that were based on 18th century Girondel mirrors, but done in neon colors and funny spots and lots of glossy paint. And I couldn't believe that someone would be able to take something so stolid, what you'd think of as old fashioned and make it so amazing. And I, you know, Jean Cocteau called his wall paintings tattoos, like he was Mm. tattooing the walls. And I think one of the reasons Luke Edward Hall's work feels fresh or people are looking at it in a different way is because they're also thinking about 80s graffiti and Keith Haring. Mm -hmm. uh, And there's this, the reduction of this sort of these classical motifs, because Luke Edward Hall will do a classical bust, right? And and things like that. Um, But it seems so now. But it It seems seems really fresh and electric. And I, I love that about him. I love that there is a younger group of people who are not unaware of the past. And I feel like sometimes they're almost like a group of people of a chronologically youthful age. And it's almost <laughs> as if the 1930s are being reborn in a way. It's like it's like Beaton and his crowd looking back to the past and trying to create something that is a contemporary take on on, on a historic uh, traditional. And, and if you look at the 30s, that was so exciting because people didn't have a lot of money. They had just gone through the First World War, and there was this feeling of how how long do, you know, life isn't forever. We mm-hmm. have to make hay while we can, burn bright, uh, live for the moment. And it really did create an incredible artistic moment right. in time. I mean, are we in a comparable moment right now? I I think it's more that we have an ennui against this minimalist moment mm-hmm. and that it's less about people thinking about classicism because I think we're uneducated for the most part. Not not us, of course, but God you forbid. know, <laughs> government. <laughs> but I think it's more 
uh, craving for maximalism. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the pendulum constantly swings between And it's not it, like any of this disappears when the swing of the pendulum goes all the way to the modern or all the way to the uh, Right. They're the still coexisting. They it's still just, coexist. What is the spotlight on right. uh, and what are people seeing in magazines like Architectural Digest? And I think we've had such a moment of this kind of minimalist, contemporary art. I mean, if you look at Kanye West and Kim Kardashian's house done by Axel Vervoort, it's just this, like, there's nothing in it. I mean, it's it's beautiful and sculptural, but I think I think the pendulum is swinging against that, and people want, you know, cozy, gaufraged, velvet, down sofas mm. to sink into, and they want pink walls, and they want, there's something comforting about Ornament cocooning yourself. Ornament and pattern. And yes. wrapping yourself in. This is why I think, you know, now that you're working on developing the Mario Bawada Prince of Decorators auction that's coming out at Sotheby's 23rd and 24th of January. Exactly. That I think an auction like that um, is going to have a huge impact again on young people because he reinterpreted what came before, but Americanized it, electrified it, although. So many people think of him as being traditional. I was just walking through the Sotheby's space with the exhibition designer, and I said to him, and Sotheby's has recently remodeled, so it's concrete Mm -hmm. floors and swaths of white walls. And I said, you have to bring color in. That is one of the keys to a Mario interior is just gorgeous, clear color. And the colors that, one one of the ways Mario tweaked the sort of John Fowler, Nancy Lancaster, Mm -hmm. English country house look was the colors, because what would work in English light which was muddier, um, uh, more pharaoh and bog colors, just looks sort of depressing in American light. And and maybe also looks silly in a smaller New York apartment space, uh, post-war apartment space, if he was working with that. And he said that his professor, uh, Stanley Barrows, who he did the, the Parsons summer school with in the 60s, instructed them, look at the paintings of the Impressionists, the the glorious, Mm -hmm. you know, chartreuse and greens and pinks. And And we're talking about a palette that is all about the outdoors. Yes. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. I think the garden was, he wanted to make a room look like a garden. And he Mm -hmm. would say, you have to have things of different heights in a room, just like a garden does. It informed his collecting. I mean, how many cabbage porcelain terrines can somebody have? Well, he can have, you know, like a couple hundred. (laughs) Um, Like he really, and he couldn't, I mean, the, the incredible thing is he wasn't a nurturer. And so in terms of like actually having a real garden, I think I don't think he had the time to do that. You know that he loved dogs and had that famous dog painting, wall of dog paintings. All those dog paintings, but no dog. He couldn't have, it just, you know, but he was running this huge business by himself. Which I think a lot of people don't remember or really know, no matter how many times they have it explained to them. But when I was reading your book about Mario, I was stunned over and over to realize that he was a one-man band. He was really doing all of this himself and the only decorator I knew whose home phone number was in the phone book. So you could call him and interrupt him in the middle of doing all of these things. And he would answer the phone. And I, there are so many stories. Of one, one of my oldest friends in New York, Beth Martell, she grew up in Kansas and she fell in love with design because she saw a room that Mario had done mm. and she wrote him and 
and he called her and encouraged her to come to New York and she did ultimately work for him for a few years. Right. And then there's another story of a young designer, Ross Hamilton, Ross Alexander, excuse me. He's in his 20s. He was from Columbus, Ohio, and his aunt thought that his artistic talents might be good as a you know decorator might be a path for mm-hmm. him and she said my favorite decorator is Mario Boada and they just called him up and he answered the phone and he got he helped him get into the New York School of Interior mm-hmm. Design for undergraduate I mean it was he was really accessible and I think maybe at the end of his life was not as appreciated as he should have been because he was everywhere and ubiquitous right. and would come to every industry event that you know, and no, it's true. Yeah. He he was a great supporter of of that industry. But you're right; he did show up to everything. Everything, <laughs> everything. and that was part. Well, one of it was he wanted people to know he was alive. You know, right. it's like you've got to show them your and face still and still working. Yeah, that was really important to him. Yeah, and another was that was how he showed support was being there, being mm-hmm. present for somebody. What do you think? To go back to something you said about Ross Alexander's m- mother saying that that he was her favorite decorator. What do you think about his work made people say that? Because I hear that from everybody. It's either they couldn't stand what he did or they loved it more than anything and he would be the one person they'd want to hire. His work is joyous and it is it's unabashedly pretty. It's the the colors are I think a, a huge component of it. Apricot, watermelon, blueberry, you know, peridot. So I think I think so many of us don't grow up in colorful rooms and and people are afraid of color. Mm. And so I think that that is one thing that would leap off the page. The upholstery, you know, just the 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 little bows that he would put on a button on a on a tufted chair or sofa, mm-hmm. those curtains for that 1984 Kipps Bay show house room, the Verrier curtains with the you know the lead is sort of pinked and gathered and right. ruched and all, the, all these dressmaker details. There's just something very romantic. And now comparing it to John. Fowler and Nancy Lancaster. Right. Who were his direct influences. Direct influences. He ramped it up. It was it was on steroids. Mm. Uh, and it was not subtle. Um, and, and there was something, somebody said to me, you know, he was Catholic, Italian Catholic, growing up on Staten Island. It's, it sort of channels, his romanticism channels his Americanism, his, the Baroque of, right, of being right. a Catholic and, you know, growing up, going to Catholic uh, services. Mm-hmm. I think there's something With about all those that. great colors and all the gilding of churches and the amazing interiors of those cathedrals. I mean, I think that feeds into that English country reinvention. I mean, it's almost like it's Sicily hits Oxfordshire. Right. You know, there's this, this strange m- moment of exuberance while still trying to be proper. Exuberant. I mean, that's the perfect word. And he he just ramps it up. And it really, for, for that moment, for that, I would say, 80s and 90s mm-hmm. um, in particular, it just, it was speaking to people. And, and a lot of his clients were old money, um, right. old wasps um, out on you know in and the north coast of of Long Island but then there were those those ones who wanted to acquire 
the look of a pedigree. And another thing about his success is that he worked really hard to be a name. It was a goal of his. Mm -hmm. He looked at what Ralph Lauren had done and how he was everywhere. And he decided in the 90s that that was something that he wanted for himself. So he started going all over the country. So I think that's another reason why people in the middle of the country have heard of him more than maybe other people have because he just he'd go to every single women's group and garden club right and he did he really did he would go to every antique show out in the midwest and he would go i mean i remember hearing from him you know i'm going to st louis i'm going to kansas city i'm going to oklahoma city where there was this really strong fan base Absolutely. And and he he loved that. I think part of him wanted to be a vaudeville entertainer. You know, he right. really he well, really he came from a show business background, he re- which um, is not to be discounted when you're looking at the mature Mario. I mean, his father was a band leader. I mean, not a top tier band leader, but he was a well-known band leader. Toured with Rudy Valley exactly. when Mario was a, a toddler. Absolutely. And I also think... I don't I don't know how deep into Mario's psychological makeup you want to get into but you know Mario was gay and I don't think his father really understood him I don't mm-hmm. think his father understood or was proud that his son was a decorator and so also part of wanting to be a name was wanting being his, a success was being a success in and, a way that his father would understand success right you know which exactly makes sense to me. and and we came across you know going through Mario's estate you know we found we came across an envelope that was that Mario had addressed to his father full of news clippings about himself and it, it was just this that's po- poignant really poignant yeah but also there's that wonderful quote he gave to A.D. years ago when A.D. had published his New York apartment where he'd lived for years and years and years, something about collecting and collecting being a reflection of what you yearned for as a child and what you Mm. were didn't get as a child and what you were not allowed to have as a child. And so there was this lust as an adult to acquire all of the things that had been denied to you. So even when you look at his own interiors for himself, I look at that and then I look at every single object as an, you know, an example of, I wasn't allowed to have this, I wasn't allowed to live with that. So it's also, it's joyous, but with this subtext. And thinking about how he collected, he couldn't just buy one, he had to buy 20. So I, it's, it's almost... This hunger. He, it's uh, this hunger and his collection. I'm, I'm so excited for people to see it. It, it was something he was very proud of. Nobody ever saw it really during his lifetime. It's very good. It, it wraps. How big of a sale it is it? So it's a two day sale. We didn't get to a thousand lots, but it's nine hundred and twenty nine okay. lots, and it it, it starts at five hundred dollars and goes up to a hundred thousand mm. dollars. And it's uh, everything: paintings, porcelains, furniture, exactly everything. Water bears, um, a pair of his scissors that are like this big. It's the Mario universe, and one of the things that really emerged. And that I understood in a different way, because, of course, when we did the book, he was alive. Mm-hmm. And now I have this whole other understanding, seeing all these, all of his papers that we never right. got to see during that process is, you know, he didn't finish college. He had a month of school at Cooper Union. He was completely self-taught. He worked for Elizabeth Draper, who was the the designer for President Eisenhower, 
you know, for like six months and then she fired him. And then he worked right. for Keith Irvin, who was uh, somebody who had worked for John Fowler. Right. And there was tension. So a traditionalist? A traditionalist. But really spirited? Very, right, very spirited. But that didn't work out. I don't think Mario was meant to work for other people. And then he, because a friend of his died, he inherited that friend's clients. He was able to open his own business in his, you know, in his 20s and, right. and immediately find great success. But a lot of what is in the collection was owned by people he admired and he studied. And there, there's a quote somewhere, it's probably an architectural digest, how he says, look at the interiors of of people you admire and learn from that and study those interiors. And so I do, I think he would just pour over books. And Let's talk about that for a minute because, I mean, to go back to Nancy Lancaster and John Fowler, who were the um, partners in Sybil Colfax and John Fowler in London, as influences on Mario, him studying those rooms. And again, like you said, amping up the style, amping up the width of things, the size of things, the scale of things. You know, if they had two chintz patterns in a room, he would do six. Right, exactly. Know. And there's this funny moment. Sister Parrish, as as I'm sure you know, was also closely allied with Nancy Lancaster yes. and John Fowler. And there was at one point she was going to open up some kind of subsidiary of Colfax and Fowler in New York. But there was like the tack, the importing or something mm. made it prohibitive. But uh, so he, Mario also really looked to Sister Parrish for her style. There's that wonderful quote from, was it Sister Parrish where yes, she said, yes. so what have you copied of me today right. or something like that? Exactly. That's, uh, that's, that's exactly what, right. That's what you, know, you and I have discussed this before. Mario was not an original. That's right. But he did it very, very well. And I would say many people copied what Mario did. Right. And it was very hard to make it look as good as Mario did. Mm. And I, I, part of it comes down to the upholstery's got to be done to perfection. It, right. You know, you can't have the swags be too mean and skimpy or, it, mm. you know, it looks like a, a bad hotel. But it, back to John Fowler and Nancy Lancaster, he first saw her yellow room in a magazine or in a book. Right, and so this is that yellow drawing room of hers in when she lived on in Brook Street or Avery Row. Exactly. Um, and was sort of like a superior bed set. You know, great high ceilings, 18th century space, early 19th century space. And hadn't she been newly divorced? And She, she had been newly divorced, She was yes. bringing all these all of these things from a grand house into this room. And one of the ways Mario always described that room is that it was a collection of all these very personal items that she had gathered throughout her. Like it was a, a scrapbook of her life in right. a way, uh, that room. But I think it was the scale of it. It was so impressive. Mm. And the unabashed exuberance of that that butter yellow, which I don't know why it was ever described as butter yellow. I've never had butter she, that color. Is that a Virginia kind of butter? No, I think it must have maybe was the butter in the during the depression when you mix yellow dye into like white egg butter. Yolk yellow. Yeah, I mean it's a it's a it's a southern Italian yellow. It's a brilliant like strong ochre. and it was gloss. Yes, yes. Which was however many of our listeners know gloss was the sort of paint that you used in children's rooms and places that had to be scrubbed a lot. Right. I mean it was very down market a glossy finish. So seeing that room was, I mean, I think we can all, we've all had that moment where you've seen something, you're like, oh my, you know, it just completely changes your DNA. 
it was, I think, 61 when he first made his way to London. And he tells the story that's probably completely apocryphal, but that he had he'd wandered in to someplace like Turnbull and Asser and bought a little polka-dotted pocket square. And then he made his way to Colfax and Fowler. And outside of it was this man wearing the same pocket square. <laughs> and they had this exchange. And, and then John Fowler took him in. And, and that was and, Fowler. And that was John Fowler. And that, and then there you go. And here you have this young, this young guy from Staten Island. Exactly. The right, the pocket square that his idol is wearing at the door to his own business. That's an amazing, I mean, I'm sorry, I've been there at 21, 22 something, and you make this weird sort of mystic connection and you think, this is, I've made it, I've made made this world, I've become part of it in some strange way. And that John Fowler was so welcoming to this young Mario who was, 25 years old, right. let's say, when he first walked in walked in there. You know, the thing about Mario, he never pretended to be something he wasn't, which is something that you can, you might come across in this industry. He never pretended he wasn't from Staten Island. No, he, it's very true. He um, it always weirdly came up in conversation. I mean, he was it was a constant leitmotif in his daily conversations. There would always be an allusion to where he was from so that no matter how sort of Grand your conversation, somehow he you know talk about his mother and his his own bedroom on Staten Island as a little boy, and you just you always had this sort of jerking you back down to reality that we can we can fly really high admiring all these people, but let's not forget where we're really from. He right, he never put on airs, and I think that's that's his clients really valued that. I think that is one of the, one of the reasons for his success is that he was not a phony. But if you just imagine a young, uneducated Mario, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. he but who is just passionate about everything Colfax and Fowler and just soaking it up. Um, and, and a quick learner. Quick learn. Like obviously, he had a natural genius, mm. um, and and John Fowler allowed him to sit at his feet. And you know, Mario talked about staying at Christmas at the Hunting Lodge, and and John would take him to go to different houses and took him to see Nancy Lancaster. I think at Hazley Court. Mm. But I found all these letters that John Fowler had written to Mario, you know, in Mario's papers, and. The, the affection in there and mm. and John talked about how he was going to build this little independent pavilion at the end of his garden and he was going to have a summer school where he would train would-be decorators and you know making a joke that Mario would be one of his clients but he'd get a, <laughs> he'd get a reduced rate of course and but then of course, he did build that room and there's even little sketches of it in the letters um, but it burned down uh, along with, many of Fowler's letters from his parents and and Mario was one of a few friends who contributed money for him to rebuild that room and Mario did it in a way of like oh I'm going to buy these things from you that I'll get when you die or, or something along those lines and Anyway, it was just, and, and Mario was like in his 30s, you know, and, and building this business, but yet he still, it just, it showed a side of him that I didn't, I didn't mm-hmm. know about. Um, Do you think that's something people are going to come away with from the auction, is a slightly more nuanced 
understanding of Mario and his world and his style? I think so. A lot, a lot of people think of Mario as epitomizing the 80s, like shoulder pads and Joan Collins mm. and Dynasty, but there's so much more there. And actually, some of his best work was done in the 70s. I mean, he was he isn't just an 80s phenomenon. Mm. It's just that's when he was dominating the pages um, of Architectural Digest. Well, um, that's, that's, a, that's the period when everything in America was about England. English style was everywhere. The treasure houses of Britain at the National Gallery yes, in Washington. Yes. Um, the Princess of Wales coming to dance with John well, Travolta. I mean, it was the whole the whole country, a certain strata of this whole country, was riveted on anything English. And Ralph Lauren, the fashion of right. what he was doing is very uh, sort of English romance, a romantic vision of that. So it would have been actually odd if Mario had not been elevated in the 80s because he was already practicing that already for 20 years. He Exactly. And I would say who were his competitors? I mean, Parrish Hadley were doing a more American version of it mm-hmm. and a little bit more. And of course, you had Albert Hadley, who right. shaped and tailored the sister Parrish right. homes. I'm not homespunness, but... And then um, you had Mark Hampton. And you had who Mark was Hampton. A more scholarly, scholarly take on what... I mean, they complemented each other Whereas Mario's was a bit more freewheeling, Mark's was was tailored and sober and and I mean I got so much inspiration and from both range, of them when I look I would at say. them. I look at both of them and think this is just great the way you've refreshed traditionalism. I, well, you're absolutely right that Mark Hampton was somebody that there was a rivalry there for sure, or at least Mario felt it on his mm-hmm. on his part. And he would even say that if his name hadn't been so Italian, Mario Boada, that he would have been much more successful, which is interesting that because I think it reflects... But then it, it reflects a, a certain... Generational. Even after all those years, yeah. but also all those years of still not feeling good enough, in a way. There was always that insecurity, exactly, even though he never tried to be something he wasn't. Right. But yeah, no, it never it never went away, absolutely. And no. then they did Blair House together. Right, they did Blair House, which was, which was really brilliant. And, and Thomas Pheasant is now working on it and saving what he can from both schemes and reinterpreting that moment because he's he's said that that was one of the high points in American decoration in the 20th century. I, it's very which exciting. Which I do think is true. And, and, and the respect of that, of, of Thomas, you know, saying, you know, I'm, I'm going to work with what's here and I'm, I'm going to become part of it, but I'm not going to get rid of it. Right, right. We, I, d- d- don't burn the dray, you know, yeah. don't tear it all out and let's start fresh. Um, Speaking of curtains... Well, you had mentioned not long ago that in in the in working on the auction that you had found the famous curtains from the Kipps famous Bay curtains. bedroom. Yes, the, the Verrier curtains you'd mentioned earlier, and I'd always wondered whatever happened to those. This was one of Mario's probably groundbreaking rooms. I mean, it was swooningly romantic. I mean, enormously high windows with these great blue and white fabric sort of sluicing down to the floor and a, a canopy bed that was as high as the room. And and that was um, that was the room where the, the TV reporter Chauncey Howell saw it and called him the Prince of Chins. And then, of course, the next day Mario is having suits made out of chins exactly. and running with it. Exactly. Um, but yes, no, that was, there was something about that room. There's something about blue and white, I think, that's, yeah. that's very ethereal. And then, oh, and, and of course, the 
walls were glazed a lavender stripe and he had said that he always he loved that fabric in particular and used it for clients a lot but no client would ever let him do lavender walls with it it always had to be blue walls and so for the show house he was able to to finally get his way and i remember too him telling me that when he worked on bedrooms that he was never surprised when it was over, but the, the husbands of his f- female clients were always surprised that he would create a very sort of opulent feminine bedroom and the husbands would just carp and complain. That, and then the next morning they would just say, this is the most wonderful room I've ever been in. Exactly, that they would revolt at the idea of a heavily curtained, canopied tester bed. And then, of course, once it's there, the wife is saying, oh, he won't let me cut out of the bed. You know, I can't leave the bedroom for exactly. the past three weeks. I mean, it was weeks. really funny. He was saying it was like having a romance rekindled, that, you know, they were always sort of slightly let's say, older clients, and then suddenly it was like they were on their honeymoon again, you know, with this sort of exuberant canopied bed and ruffles and everything. And, you know, I think just really super deep comfort. And I can't help but think that when you when you think about hotel bedrooms, because I do think hotel design leads a lot of the direction of interior design today. Mm-hmm. At least when I the students I teach at the New York School of Interior Design, that's what they're looking at. That's what they think is a high point is hotel rooms. If you look at Mario's bedrooms, I've never seen a hotel bedroom that looked like that. No, never. It's so personal. It's there's just I mean there's too much to dust for housekeeping. You know. Yeah, with this all is true. I mean, the, the only thing I want out of a hotel bedroom is the room service. I mean, that's really, <laughs> if I could have that, I'd be unbelievably happy. But I do find it really interesting you're saying that. I mean, how many times have I written stories over the years where you have a, 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 a client who says they were, they came back from some amazing hotel in the south of France or some amazing hotel in Rome. I want my bedroom to be just like this. And I thought, Why? Why do you want a hotel bedroom? It should be because a hotel bedroom has to serve so many people. So there has there's this anonymousness to it, right? right? And anonymity, and and that is absolutely the antithesis antithesis of what Mario was doing for his clients. He, you know, I I couldn't believe how um, how sort of penny conscious he was for his clients like he didn't want them to buy anything you know he wanted to go up into their attics and use things that had been handed down to them when um, his clients sold that that the Earl Blackwell apartment mm-hmm. that was on 57th Street the buyer bought almost all the contents and he was furious when he had to buy everything new for the new apartment it made him maybe too like maybe he just didn't like to have a blank slate well, there's something about that, isn't there? That you have something to work up against and to to move you in certain directions. But also there were things that were no longer being made today and that kind of thing that were in that apartment, like right. certain carpets and that that sort of thing. I, I, another client that I just saw, she had never, she didn't grow up with a decorator, and and so Mario came to them and and saw all the furniture that they had bought themselves, and he's like, no, this is great, and most. You know, most designers have been like, "No, you've got to, we've got to start from scratch." Anyway, right. I, but I like that 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 it you know that has a certain generosity of spirit of let's work with what you've got, let's make it better. And there's a kernel of that person embedded in the design that it's already a personal design. Right. It's not something personal to the designer who's creating it. True. 
Yeah, I, I, I love looking at photographs of, of his apartment so much. It's, I mean, he was there for how many years? 40. 40. About 40 years, yeah. Over I mean, 40 years. Beautiful. It was, and he, it, it, it was beautiful. Um, and it's in the new, it's in the new AD at 100 book. It's, it's, you know, one of our standout features over a hundred years. Well, you know, people look at that. When, after he died, people were asking, can that room, can that living room be donated to the Smithsonian? I mean, I think it is, and it was like, no, it's going to, <laughs> it's going to be sold and um, everybody can can enjoy it. And even the, the Lee Jofa floral bouquet curtains, which are now almost a tea stain as opposed right. to the white ground they once were. But those he had from two previous apartments and he would just add on to the length of them and his ceiling heights got taller and taller. But those will be in the sale, and I'm, you know, I hope, I hope somebody enjoys them and and you know appreciates them. So, what are you working on now? Is there another book in the in the Emily? Evans Erdman's Pipeline? Yes, there is. And this is the book that I've wanted to do for a very long time on T.H. Robshawn Gibbings, um, who sort of epitomizes the looking to the past. And his big moment wasn't looking at Nancy Lancaster's bedsit, but going to the British Museum to the room with all the ancient Greek vases. And, and seeing the furniture painted, painted on, on the vases, vases. And it just electrified him. And, and he came from a really traditional background working with yes, Charles of London. Exactly, exactly. And so so he he was a creation. He changed his name. He uh, he was born in Liverpool from a modest family, but when he came to America at a young age, you know, he had a grant, you know, he used that Britishness. And, he threw in a hyphen. Yeah, and exactly. Right, that's right. Became very Robshawn was a middle name, and all of a sudden he was double-barreled. Yes, and so working for Charles of London, doing Long Island, huge palatial houses in that robber baron style. Right, Unlike, and that great house in Hollywood that, that, that Conrad Casa Hilton and Cantata, owned. which I think is for sale right now. Is it for sale again? Uh, it's yeah. an, you know, it's amazing, because you see his furniture, and that, like like Mario, Rob Sean Gibbings was was pretty wedded to a particular strain of design up until he died. And unlike Mario, though, he did have he rebelled against the denseness of that Charles of London type of interior, right. and so his interior was still classically based. So I think that's a really interesting marriage of modernism and streamlined, mm-hmm. but using the classical vocabulary. So I'm excited about that. Um, well, it sounds great. When is that coming out? <laughs> when your Pauline de Rochelle book comes out. Oh, oh that hurt. That hurt. Mm. That we're all, all right. dying for. Okay, all right. I'll take that challenge. <laughs> Emily, thank you very much for oh, coming Mitch. in today and talking about Mario and design oh, and the forthcoming me. auction. And thank you again. Thank you. Pleasure. The ADS Theat is produced and edited by Diane Dragon and Emma Wartzman. Music by Circus Marcus. All rights reserved by Condé Nast. To reach us about this episode or any other episodes, find us on social media at ArcDigest or email us at letters at arcdigest.com.